everyone and welcome to today's podcast. Now, my guest today is an adventurer, a campaigner, best-selling author, cancer survivor, and triple world record holder, Lizzie Carr, MBE. Now, she is a real powerhouse in the environmental impact space and was named in the top 10 female climate activists by Stylist Magazine, as well as receiving her MBE in 2021 for her outstanding contribution to environmental work and activism. Lizzie is also the first person in history to paddleboard the length of England waterways, solo and unsupported, completing the 400-mile journey in 22 days. Absolutely amazing. As well as being the first female in history to solo paddleboard across the English Channel, which she did in seven hours. Alongside this, Lizzie also talks openly about her journey with cancer and mental health after receiving her diagnosis at the age of just 26. As I'm sure you probably gathered by this point, she is a beacon of endurance, inspiration, survival, and determination to make a difference both in her own life and also for the planet. And I cannot wait to hear more from her today. So Lizzie, welcome. Welcome to Give Me Strength. How are you today? I'm really good, thank you. A bit miserable out there weather-wise, but otherwise happy. Like I said, really excited to have you on. There's actually so much that I want to talk about today. I mean, I mentioned a lot of things in that introduction. You've been a busy person (laughs) thus far in your life. So I guess really... It would be really great to start by hearing about what came first for you, because there are a lot of things that we talked through there in terms of your environmental work, uh, your physical challenges, um, and also then your kind of, you know, health um, journey as well. So for me, I'd love to start hearing about what came first. Was it that you were someone that was always interested in sport and then you came across paddleboarding or how did you kind of enter into that space of then taking on such big challenges? It's a really um, interesting journey, actually. I would say I was always quite sporty growing up, but I wasn't necessarily a, a water baby. You know, I didn't love the water. I didn't grow up, um, you know, along the coast or anything like that. Um, I would say that my cancer diagnosis was the catalyst to everything that you've talked about in that introduction. So that was what set me on the pathway of paddleboarding. Um, I only took the sport up completely by chance after um, after getting my diagnosis as a way of just recovering. It was low impact physically. Um, but what I didn't expect from it were the sort of profound mental health benefits that it gave me. Um, so those two things combined just made it feel, you know, you just, I just found something that was me. It was what I needed in that moment. Um, and, I, and I was hooked after that. Um, in terms of my environmental work and my campaigning work, like most people, I was living in an environmental sleepwalk for most of my life. And it was only again by being on the water that I was seeing so I was seeing the environment from a very different perspective. I was seeing the water from a very different perspective. And um, it really opened my eyes to a lot of the problems we're facing. At the time, it was around um, plastic pollution. And that's really been a, a big gateway to my campaigning. It's evolved a lot from then. So let's just go to the, the cancer diagnosis then, because I guess if that was the catalyst for all of this, it would be really interesting to start there. Because, you know, receiving a diagnosis at only 26, and I'm, I don't actually know, and it would be really interesting to hear kind of what cancer you were diagnosed with and, and and how you navigated that incredibly difficult journey of having to, I guess, sort of realign and relook at your life at only 26 when things are just starting to take off for you. Um, so really, what was that experience like? And I guess also, how did you, how did you receive that diagnosis? Yeah, it was completely unexpected. You know, in your mid-20s, the last thing you ever think you're going to hear is that you have cancer. So the type of cancer that I was diagnosed with 
with was thyroid cancer, um, which is a very rare cancer, but it's actually one of the most common in young females. Um, and I'd never heard of it before. I don't even think I was sure where my thyroid was at the time. Um, so it completely, it completely blindsided me. I found a lump in my throat. I didn't really think much of it, but I got it checked out anyway. Um, and because I was young, fit and healthy, or as I was consistently told by medical teams, um, they weren't too concerned, but I, I don't know what it was, but something just told me that it wasn't right. Like just my gut was telling me to keep investigating, keep pushing, ask for more tests to get to the bottom of it because I couldn't get a concrete answer about what it was. Um, I just wanted to to understand it. Um, so the diagnosis took quite a while to be honest um, and then when I finally did get it I didn't expect it but I, I knew something hadn't been right um, and then from there you know I just I suppose at the time you you just all you're focusing on is recovery you're just thinking about the moment that you're in and you're trying not to look ahead you're trying not to overthink you're trying not to get overwhelmed by it because all you're trying to do is survive in that moment and um, so it wasn't really until about a year after I'd got the all clear that I think the emotional and the mental well-being side of it kind of came crashing down on me because I was just in survival mode throughout the whole process of going through the diagnosis and the treatment. Yeah, I, I think that's such a common story that you hear from people that go through trauma in, in, in many different ways is that like, it's actually, you know, our brain has this like protective mechanism of survival mode for us. And then suddenly, like, as soon as you start to maybe have a bit of distance between you and that initial trauma, you actually get this kind of wave of almost like secondary trauma where you really start to live through I guess, some of the emotions that you weren't able to process at the time. And so I'm guessing that, you know, as a result of, and you, you said that paddleboarding came as a result of your diagnosis, how did you connect those two things? And, you know, one of the things that I love talking to people about on this podcast is that, you know, our title is Give Me Strength, and, and we learn about strength in lots of different ways. And I guess for you, your, your coping mechanism from something that was so difficult and challenging to go through at such a young age was to find strength in, in, in the physical kind of way, but also I'm guessing in the mental way at the same time. So what was it that drew you to paddleboarding? I mean, how did that come about in that recovery journey? You said it was low impact and I, and I totally appreciate that, but I guess as someone who says they didn't grow up near water, I, I just, I'd love to hear about how it was like, you know, what connected you to then picking up a paddle and saying, let's do this. Like I can, I'm going to go across the channel. Uh, so I actually went to go and stay with my dad who lives on the Isles of Scilly after I'd finished treatment. Um, and I was just sat on the beach one day with him looking out over the water and saw someone in the distance on a paddleboard. And I just said to my dad, I really, I need to have a go. That's, that looks like what I need right now. Um, and I went over to a paddleboarding club on another bay, asked to borrow a board um, told them I hadn't done it before. Can't believe they gave me a board, but they did. And off I went and I sort of went just around the bay a little bit and I was just hooked. I just thought this is this is something I can see myself doing. And when I came back to London where I was living, I would spend every spare moment I had going out on the water down at the, like, sort of my local club, just up and down the canals as much as I possibly could. Because for me, it was a place to escape. It gave me um, a feeling of perspective and freedom that I just couldn't get from anything else. And 
as part of recovery, what you're often doing is trialing and erroring in a lot of different coping mechanisms and ways to help yourself. And that was the one thing that I knew would always make me feel better. And I would always go back to was paddleboarding. That's really interesting. Yeah, because I'd love to hear about that kind of um, mental recovery, that side of things. You are, you know, trying, as you said, trying and, and maybe navigating the tricky world that is recovery from trauma and, and from, from a really difficult period of your life. Um, so, you know, stepping onto that board, what was what was that feeling like? Because I, I compl- completely can see how it's, you know, the most amazing and freeing experience. I think water in itself is healing. You know, I think any time that I've been near water or felt this kind of like connection to water, I do think that it has almost like this healing way of making you feel, I guess, as you said, a bit more perspective about the world we live in. So I'm really interested to hear about that, that mental journey of, of, I guess, you know, stepping onto a board and then, and then really finding a place of recovery through that, because, you know, as you said, recovery isn't linear and it's a really difficult process. And so as your body healed, was there something in, in, in the paddleboarding that also then took you on a bit of a kind of mental resilience and recovery journey as well? Yeah. I mean, You've summed it up beautifully there. Definitely being by the water gives you um, just this incredible feeling of calm. And I think that combined with what you say, the perspective was was really just um, great in that moment. In terms of being on the water and paddling and the journey itself, I mean, it wasn't the only thing that helped me through um, a really difficult time. But what I found was is being on the water and paddling it gave me more confidence in my body. It taught me to trust my body again. And I'd felt so let down by it. And I felt it was something that, to be honest, I'd never even thought about how much I trusted my body up until I didn't trust it anymore. Um, and when I did my first big endurance challenge, there was this sort of this huge environmental piece to it, which I'm sure we'll come on to. But there was also this sort of eat, pray, love type of expedition for me personally. It was kind of me going and doing this big adventure and proving to myself that I was fit enough, strong enough, well enough to take on something of that scale and complete it. And I think there was a lot of naivety going into that first challenge, that 400 mile journey, because I just started medicating because obviously when you have thyroid cancer, your thyroid is removed and therefore you're medicating for life with a chronic illness. Um, And I had other complications around that. So my body was just starting to adjust this sort of medication and the, you know, the, the tiredness, the fatigue and everything that comes with it. But I was just so adamant that I had to do this environmentally and personally because I needed to feel that that I could Mm. I really yeah I really can see that and I think I I can totally empathize with that kind of I guess like inner need And and I totally love what you said about kind of trusting your body again that's such a huge part of I'm sure that recovery process is actually like you know in in a way you sort of disconnect from your body and you try and you're very much talking about you know your illness and as you said like even these things of like medication and all of this getting involved but trying to reconnect with your body and reconnect with what it's able to do must have been really empowering but I think on your point I'd actually I'd be really interested to hear about I guess how you connected the dots of um, doing this big challenge which must have been almost like unthinkable when you received your diagnosis to then feeling that you could do it 
also at the same time, having that focus of doing it for a wider you know, motive than just for yourself. So it wasn't just about you proving to yourself that you could do it, but there was so much more, you know, involved in that with you becoming very concerned about the environment and and really wanting to champion that as a cause at the same time. So how did you kind of bring those things together? And at what point did your passion for, you know, making change within the environmental space really start to come in? The more time I was spending on the water just for leisure, the more I was seeing how awful the issue was with plastic pollution, particularly on the inland waterways. So up and down Regent's Canal in London. Um, and the real turning point for me was the moment I saw a bird's nest. It was a coot's nest and it was made up almost entirely of plastic wrappers, straws, um, all those kind of things. And the first things, the first thing that these eggs that were in there would see when they hatched was plastic and it's all man-made and it's all us you know and I for the first time connected myself with the problem with pollution because these were brands that I was using these were um products that I was using and I knew I was part of part of that problem and I think when you're on the water you see everything from a very different perspective everything is magnified you're not just observing nature you are part of nature on a paddleboard there's no motor there's no engine it's just you and the sound of the water and the wildlife around you so I think I was using the water as a place to feel better to restore my health yet I was ignoring all of these problems I was seeing around me with wildlife getting caught in things with the you know the the wrappers in nests and the two just didn't connect for me anymore it was like I can't keep doing this activity and ignoring this really important issue that it's facing that to be honest I had been completely unaware of even though I walk up and down the canals and rivers across London all the time until I've seen it from this very unique perspective so that's very much how the environmental side of it came in and um, I think in terms of sort of going on and deciding to do this big endurance challenge for the first time that wasn't sort of a simple linear process either I'd gone back to work for three years after my diagnosis and I struggled a lot with survivor's guilt and sort of questioning my own existence and like people around me obviously didn't survive and I did and I felt incredibly guilty about that and I'd go back to work every day and I just feel this itch and just question what I was doing because I had a second chance and other people around me didn't have a second chance. And I was wasting my second chance, just going back to work in a job that I wasn't fulfilled by into this life that I was trying to fit back into that had existed before, but didn't really suit me now because I'd changed so much as a person because of all the lessons that having cancer and going through trauma teaches you. And I decided that I would quit my job with no other intention than to spend more time on the water and give myself the space to really figure out what I wanted to do next, where my life was going to take me. I toyed with becoming a yoga teacher. I toyed with becoming a social worker. Um, but what I found was that the more time I was spending on the water, as I mentioned, it was just drawing me into it more and more. It just felt like this was the place I needed to be. 
And that was when I then decided, okay, I'm going to do this endurance challenge. I'm going to paddleboard the whole length of England through our connected waterways, 400 miles from Surrey to the Lake District. And I'm going to photograph every single piece of litter that I see on that route so that I can show the scale of this problem from an individual's perspective to really try and highlight the extent of what is happening on our waterways. Um, and of course, like I say, there was this personal element to it that I camped along the waterways every night. You know, I took my tent, I took my sleeping bag. It was an incredible adventure on a shoestring budget, but there was this much greater purpose to it as well. So everything just kind of combined. First of all, you are so incredible for doing that because that is, in, you know, just, I mean, even the word camping for me, I'm like, oh God, I don't think I can. But, you know, that paired with the physical challenge is pretty impressive. Well, it's hugely impressive. But I think that you make a really good point. And I, I think it's something that all of us need to sort of be, I guess, made aware of is that we can all be so insulated from the impact of our actions when it comes to climate change, you know, me living in my little bubble here, I do my recycling and, you know, you sort of, you think you're doing all the right things. I drive an electric car, but it's only when you sort of step out of your, especially I don't live near any, you know, super close to any water. I mean, the Thames is, I guess, not that far, but, you know, without really looking outside of our bubble, we can kind of plod along without really recognizing how bad things are getting and how bad things have gotten, you know? And I think that for someone like you to really, I guess, bring that home a bit for people to make it very abundantly clear that this is every day, every waterway, every, you know, part of the UK being impacted by our actions that we do every day, and not just us, but, you know, big companies you know you said that recognizing and I think that's one of the, the fine things I find hard is you you know I do sometimes go down to the river or where near where my parents live and you see you know crisp packets and chocolate wrappers and stuff that's just like could you not find a bin you know <laughs> um or a recy recycling bin even but more and but it's worse than that it's seeing you know bikes and all this sort of stuff that's like all just taking up our waterways and I think when you step outside of your bubble and I'm making this point in a very roundabout way but you realize that there is such a huge impact of our actions on the world that we live in. And that actually like, and I, I really feel this more than ever, like why do we feel like we're more important than anyone else? Do you know what I mean? Within the, within the ecosystem that we exist in. And I sit and watch like the David Attenborough documentaries and I'm like, oh my God, the world is incredible. But yet at the same time, look at what we're doing to it. And I think that I really respect you for, I guess, taking that kind of aspect of, I'm going to do it from a personal perspective, that photographing of every single piece of, you know, litter that you've seen, because it does bring it home for people. And sometimes that's really what we need. I completely agree. And I think for me, having the diagnosis that I had was so humbling in that sense, because it does make you reassess and reevaluate everything. All of a sudden, you realise what you did prioritise and what you did think were important really aren't. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful for having that experience, particularly so young, you know, at the time when all my friends were out having sort of Tinder dates and babies and getting engaged, I was laying in a hospital bed, lighting up a Geiger counter because I was so radioactive, you know, it was like two ends of a spectrum. And going through that definitely teaches you, you're right, that we are all just part of an ecosystem and 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 that was kind of where I'd got to in terms of questioning my own existence. Why am I? Why am I here? Um, 
And like I say, I'm really grateful that I had that opportunity at that age so that I could then spend the rest of my life doing something about it. But I think at the time that I was campaigning, this is going back sort of to 2016, plastic pollution particularly just really wasn't in the mainstream the way that it is now. And it really needed a voice, like the the problem needed to be spoken about more. And it needed to be done in a way that would make people listen. And what I found is if I went to people and said, there's a real problem with plastic in our waterways, um, no one would really care. No one would really listen. But as soon as I paired that with an activity, paddleboarding, and I was doing a huge challenge and a big adventure, that was a vehicle to get people interested and to spark conversation about the environment in a way that people would absolutely listen to now, but weren't listening to back then. So for me, paddleboarding has always been a way to talk about an issue that is important rather than the paddleboarding adventure on it. So like, yeah, it, it was a, it was great. And I'm so pleased that I did that. And I learned so much about myself and resilience and mental strength and limitations as well as part of that. Um, but it was a means to an end in terms of the environmental conversation. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. Did anything actually happen off the back of that? Did you action any change off the back of that first challenge? Or did it sort of just raise awareness and, and raise a bit of a conversation? And then off the back of that, you've then gone on to do more? Because I, I know that you've been, you know, awarded an incredible OBE for your services to for your environmental work. So there's obviously been a lot that's happened since then that you've done to campaign for change. And I think as well, one of the things that I'm really keen to understand is that I think it's a really important thing that you say about our kind of, you know, the role of plastic and understanding the impact of our actions, whether they be from, you know, using a reusable straw all the way up into doing, you know, much bigger things like reducing how much we fly every year or, you know, whatever it might be. But um, I think a lot of people feel this sense of, you know, oh, I'm, it's just me. I'm, you know, my actions don't make a difference. And, you know, I actually saw a tweet literally today that said that there were, I think, 700 private planes that flew in, or maybe 7,000 private planes that flew into Las Vegas for the NFL final. And like, why why am I recycling my yogurt pot lids when, you know, that's going on in the world? And so I do think that there's a big conversation to be had about why our everyday changes in our behavior, like, for example, one of the things that you've been campaigning for, which is banning plastic bags is so important because it's almost those those small things that we're doing that add up to making a big difference environmentally. I think there's two things here. We absolutely need to be doing more like from a personal level or as much as we can within the world that we live in, the means that we have and the privilege that we have that you know is afforded to us. But on top of that and where my campaigning focuses more is on system change. You know, you're right, we can all recycle or do more in terms of recycling. But when the system only recycles between 10 and 11 percent of what we put into our recycling boxes, um, we're failed by the system and the infrastructure that's meant to be there to support us. So a lot of the work that I do now um, and what happened off the back of that first challenge was I set up an environmental nonprofit called Planet Patrol. Um, and we invite people out onto the water to try paddleboarding and it's completely free. We run it all over the country. People can take part and their payment or their nature tax, as we call it, is that they record any litter that they find in the app. There's, a, there's an app called Planet Patrol 
And um, you record that by the type of litter, the amount, the brand, um, and the exact location that you find it in. And then we analyse that and we produce reports every year that we then take to government with key recommendations and that we take to the biggest polluting brands with our sort of key recommendations to them as well. So for us, it's about going out and collecting litter, but litter is evidence. You know, if we don't record information about the litter that we're collecting, we're essentially just hamsters on a wheel. You know, this stuff gets churned out, we consume it and we throw it in the bin and then more gets churned out. And no one's taking a step to actually question what are we finding, where are we finding it? Why is it ending up here? How can we stop this? Um, and that's kind of the role that we take as an organisation. So that's probably where, well, it's absolutely where I've dedicated most of my time since that first challenge. And all of the other challenges that I've done since have very been have been very much around continuing to try and push that conversation forward. So when I paddleboarded um, across the English Channel, I was collecting samples and data on microplastics. And to be honest, it was probably a little bit ahead of the conversation when I did it because people were only just kind of waking up to plastic pollution and I was talking about microplastics. I think it was almost a bit premature in the conversation, but I just wanted people to be aware and and having these conversations and, and the issue being driven forward. Um, and yes, I've done the, a, a campaign to um, ban plastic bags in the UK Um purely based on the fact that um, the information that government is sharing now around plastic bag reduction since they've imposed this sort of levy that has been put in place in 2021. Um, we've seen a 98% reduction in, in plastic bags at point of sale, they say. But what they are not saying is that most single-use plastic bags, which are the only ones recorded and given in government data, um, they've been replaced with bags for life at point of sale, which are four times more carbon intensive, use three times more plastic, and they cost more money that doesn't have to be um, donated to good causes, whereas the levy charges do. Um, so actually, it's just completely misleading the general public into thinking there's a solution that's been put in place and it's been really effective when it hasn't. It's actually more than likely made the problem worse. But because we're not collecting data on these types of bags, because they're not deemed single use, because they're too thick, even though they are a point of sale, we don't actually know the scale of the problem that now exists. They've just moved wow. the problem from one place to another. It takes time to sit and research and look into the information that's being put in, you know, on government's website and in these spaces to really understand what's happening, and what's going on behind the scenes. And that's what I really try and do, like in terms of my campaigning work is kind of dig into the data and what it really means. I guess one of the places that, you know, unfortunately we find ourselves in right now is that the news is being made on a regular basis about how terrible our waterways are, whether that be that big companies are polluting our waterways in 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 more ways than ever before, um, or whether it be that they're, um, you know, the government are kind of trying to get away with, I guess, sneaky ways of being able to turn their back on the issue of how bad our waterways are in terms of the pollution levels. I know that a lot of people who are, for example, wild swimmers or, or regular swimmers around the UK have reported things like seeing, you know, raw sewage in the water. And we really find ourselves in quite a, a, a critical stage right now, I'm guessing. And so alongside the, the plastic issue, which is obviously huge and a, and a big component of that issue, there's also just why is nobody... I guess in, in in a place of power, let's say, um, why are they not caring about this? Surely this is just the most important thing right now for 
you know our our health and well-being in this country like it's such a critical part of that why are why are we not seeing like drastic change the lack of political will and ambition to do something about the state of our waterways is absolutely staggering even with the level of public pressure that we're seeing now on the sewage pollution issue and honestly like the sewage pollution scandal that's been uncovered over the last couple of years is really just scratching the surface a bit like plastic pollution is the gateway to a much bigger problem sewage pollution is also a gateway to a lot of other issues around things like um forever chemicals antimicrobial resistance microplastics um we we just we do need to see more action and more urgent action from government and the work again that we've been doing at planet patrol is very much in that space around water quality so we still do a lot of our collection of data around litter we still run our paddleboarding cleanups all across the uk but we also do water quality testing um and what i would really love to see is the data that we're collecting our volunteers across the country are collecting For citizen science, which is what we call it, community science, citizen science, which is just the general public going out and um, recording information, recording research into the app, for that to be integrated in some way into government frameworks. Because at the moment, citizen science, the work that we do, isn't really seen as robust or credible science. Um, Yet we're able to capture data at a scale that would be otherwise impossible because there's volunteers across the country, across the world taking part. Um, But I think, you know, cynically, the less data government has, the less they have to, the less they have to act, to be honest. Um, So it's not in their interest to integrate the work we're doing into their frameworks, but it's obviously in our interest to keep collecting that data and building these reports and going to them with our findings and demanding change. Um, Because like you say, they're not... um, they're not rushing to do anything about it. It's so depressing. And I think that, you know, <laughs> you you only have to kind of like, I guess, just look at the the critical, like I said, the critical state in which we find our waterways to be like, you just want to bang your head against the wall and go, why is nobody caring? But I guess, unfortunately, you know, where we find ourselves now, there's so many pressing issues, all of which feel of of vital importance that it's like, I guess at some point, you know, we have to look at what, what we as the individual can do to make a difference. If, if those that are higher up the, you know, on the kind of um, being able to make change spectrum um, aren't going to do, what can we do as individuals that are going to make a difference? So I guess my question to you is, you know, you're someone who works in this day in, day out, and I'm sure you're probably well-versed in giving advice on how, you know, me, you, and anyone that's listening can make even the smallest of impact on, you know, the water that we have around us and also just generally the environment from a wider perspective. So what are some of the things that you feel are really big changes or, or, or you know, kind of most impactful changes that one can make on um, the environment in which we live in? Honestly, I think getting involved in citizen science is so important And it can be around all sorts of different issues that you might care about. And obviously we do the litter collection. We do the water quality testing. There's other organisations that run other citizen science programmes. You could even do something like the Garden Birdwatch if you're into biodiversity. Data is key because data is evidence. And if you have that evidence, then you have power and you have a voice. And 
So it's not about just individual things you do at home. It's about how you can use your individual power collectively to make a massive impact. And that's what citizen science does. That's the sort of the basis of everything that we do as an organization at Planet Patrol. So I think it can feel really lonely and overwhelming and you can start to feel quite despondent when you're just doing your little bit by yourself and I think for me as a campaigner over the last few years having a community around me having planet patrol having like-minded people that are on my page that really understand what I do and why I do it is incredibly motivating I think finding finding your people issues that are really important to you you can't care about and act on everything nobody can it'd be impossible you'd burn out I think people just need to pick the issues that mean the most to them and find a way to be involved in that and use the skills that they have. If it's not citizen science, they might be a graphic designer, they might be a copywriter, they might be a video editor. Use the skills that you have to drive that particular issue forward. That's such good advice. And you're right, like we can almost have that kind of like... um that burnout of trying to care about so many things. And there are always causes that feel really important. But I absolutely think that you're right, that, you know, choose something that you feel passionate about and then use your skills to be able to amplify it in in whatever way you can. I think that's really brilliant advice. Are there any shocking facts that you've uncovered in your um, Planet Patrol research and citizens, uh, you know, kind of um, research when gathering that data? Is there anything that's really shocked you that you think people should be aware of? I don't necessarily know through our research, I think more from the the wider research that we've done or the issues that we know exist. Sure, like, um, what is there? I mean, it's probably, I don't know, I assume because it's in my world, it's fairly common knowledge, but we've got only 16% of um, waterways in in the UK pass what's called good ecological or reach what's called good ecological status and none of them not a single waterway in this entire country achieves what's called good chemical status um and that's because of um things like forever chemicals so that's issues like PFAS so if you've got anything at home like non-stick cookware uh, water repellent clothing anything like that that basically um stops oil or water-based um anything oil-based or water absorbing into a material, um, it's likely that there's PFAS on there. It's incredibly damaging um, to human health, although there's not much research to prove that. Um, There's a film you can watch uh, on Netflix called Dark Waters by Mark Ruffalo's in it um, that talks all about uh, the PFAS issue in America and the lawsuits that have been filed all over America, a bit like an Erin Brockovich type situation. Wow. I feel like... PFAS is not on, or forever chemicals is not on the radar of the general public in this country. Um, And it absolutely needs to be because it affects every single one of us and it is prolific and it is not regulated very well in this country. In places like Germany and in Denmark, they have very strict guidelines around PFAS in rivers, in drinking water. Um, It is regulated in this country and I'm not here to fear monger. Like, it's it's just something that people need to be aware of. A bit like plastic pollution, a bit like sewage pollution. I think there needs to be more, more conversation about forever chemicals. That's so, and, and that's something that like I'd never even heard of. So is that sort of like uh, if you've got a non-stick frying pan, for example, or something like that? Yeah, absolutely that, yeah. And you can get non-stick frying pans that don't have PFAS in them, like special brands that, you know, make 
mm-hmm. make it clear mm-hmm. that they're PFAS free. Even on pizza boxes, they've got the like the lining of them on there will have PFAS in it. It's, you know, it's 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 ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's part of our lives, mm. and it'll be absorbed by us and in our bloodstream and that kind of thing. But I just think for it to be better regulated and better understood and more money funded and pumped into research, there needs to be more understanding from the general public. So there could be more noise around it and more campaigning, um, a bit like has been with water quality and sewage pollution. One of the things that I'm really interested in is, you know, in this country, we're pretty much told that wherever you are, you can go to the tap, run the tap, fill up a glass of water and be able to drink it safely. Do you believe that to be true? I do believe that to be true. And I think we have some of the cleanest, safest tap water in the world. But I still I still feel this is a, I've got here a bottle and it's still filtered. Like I will still always filter my tap water when I drink it. Um, but it's so hard. And it's this question for me as somebody that hates single-use plastics. And obviously it does have concerns about tap water, which is lesser of two evils, drinking out of a plastic bottle. Um, and there was recent research around microplastics from plastic bottles, le- well, actually not microplastics, nanoplastics in plastic bottles leaching into drinking water from the bottles. And that's never been uncovered before because the research has only been on microplastics and not nanoplastics. Um, so to be honest, like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. And this goes back to the point about picking an issue you care about and focusing on that because you could drive yourself crazy. Like sometimes I wish I didn't know half the things I know because there's not really much you can do about it. I completely agree with you that I don't want to sit here and scare monkey. Like I asked a bit of a loaded question there and I think, you know, I don't want to sit here and make anyone concerned about, you know, things that are sadly sometimes out of our control. But I do think that, you know, one of my, uh, I guess, interest is on you know it there's a the marrying up of I guess what someone like you who's completely impartial and saying look the, these are the issues that are going on here versus the government saying no our water's absolutely fine there's nothing wrong with it you know <laughs> and I think that it is interesting to hear that sort of middle ground and someone like yourself saying well you know um yes it's safe but you know xyz and I, I do think that's interesting to for us to know and I sometimes think that you know too much and knowing too much can be not dangerous is the wrong word but it can cause you to be to live with some like a low level anxiety constantly about everything and anything around you but I do also think that us knowing about these things can also then spur us to make small changes where possible which which you know if enough people do it can make a bigger change if that makes sense that's exactly what it is it's about having information it's about being informed so that you can make better decisions not about being scared I drink tap water. Like I said, we have some of the cleanest tap water in in this country than anywhere in the world. Um, And we're so privileged and lucky to have that. Um, But yes, I still have concerns about it. I'm more concerned though about our waterways um, and sort of the freshwater environments. And I don't expect that to be drinking water standards. I think that's another conversation that needs to be had. If we're using rivers and these environments to swim in, to use recreationally, we can't expect them to be drinking water standards, but we should expect them to be cleaner than they actually are right now. So talk to me about what your plans are for the future you've obviously got a lot of projects that I'm sure are on the horizon and a lot of ambitions that you want to try and achieve so you have overcome and done so much in the last few years and I just feel like um I'm I'm guessing that's great impetus to keep it going and almost to try and achieve more in the next few years so talk to me what's on the horizon for you and and what have you got coming up that you're really wanting to to talk about and share 
You know, there's two things to that. I had a little girl uh, three years ago. Oh, congratulations. And, um, yeah, <laughs> thank you. During lockdown, she was a little COVID baby. Um, and I think that really um, sort of realigned my priorities in having her at, at the time that I did as well. And I think my campaigning now, because she's like a real tangible human, like we always talk quite, ab- like it's quite an abstract way about the next generation and the future. And then when you have your own little child and you see them there, um, it, it gives that a totally different meaning. It has for me anyway, I can't speak for everybody. So I think my focus, to be honest, more recently has just been about trying to balance campaigning and activism work with actually just being a mum and that's really hard <laughs> it sounds easy but it's been it's been really challenging because up until having her I could give every part of myself and my time to the cause that I cared about and now I have to kind of almost split myself in two because they're two things that I care so deeply about and by doing my campaigning work it also benefits her but it means time away from her so I think I'm still trying to navigate actually just being a working mum is the long and short of it right now. And that's kind of my immediate priority. But in terms of, of Planet Patrol and what we're doing is launching a um, a nationwide water quality testing programme so that people can be sent test kits and go out onto the local waterways and just record very simple data around things like pH levels, nitrates, uh, phosphates, and, and what we call coliform bacteria, which is essentially sewage pollution, so that we have this, this baseline, to be honest, that doesn't really exist about um, the state of, of UK waterways at the moment. Um, you asked earlier on about shocking statistics another one's just sprung to mind because I sort of had a bit of a um a mind blank when you asked but um last year um like the authorities that test our waterways only 19,400 tests were conducted and that's about an 83 percent drop from like 10 years earlier so we're seeing this huge decline in testing we're seeing this huge decline in budgets being allocated to testing so we're really trying to fill that information deficit and that 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 gap in knowledge so that better decisions can be made about what we need to do to to solve the issue with poor water quality so that's the priority sort of personally and professionally going forward so basically anyone that's listening that would like to get involved they can reach out to planet patrol and be able to sign up for a test kit is that right yeah absolutely amazing well i would definitely encourage anyone to do that Lizzie, I want to talk to you about receiving your MBE because that is such a huge achievement. And I'm pretty sure it's something that, uh, you know, I, people always say they weren't expecting it, but I would love to know, were you were you expecting it? Did you even know that you'd been nominated for it? Honestly, hand on heart, I had absolutely no idea. Um, I got an email through, it doesn't look particularly professional and I thought it was spam actually. Um, and then I got a phone call I still to this day have no idea who nominated me and whoever it was must know me and my work fairly well because I think there's sort of an application that you have to go through and a process you have to go through. And I would love to know who it was and just to say thank you because I never expected it. But yeah, it was it was genuinely a huge surprise. Um, And obviously it's it's nice to get that recognition. And but it was never really what I set out to do is never on my radar to, to you know, have an MBE. Um, 
so yeah whoever if anyone that did it is listening thank you if you're listening please you must you yeah you must find out because that's such a nice way to be able to say thank you you know like I think yeah it's, yeah. it's a very special acknowledgement though and, and like richly deserved and I really I really um you know my preparation for this interview I really found it interesting reading about all that you've done and and um I just yeah you're in a very very inspiring woman so thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast it's been so great to chat to you and also just yeah huge admiration for the work that you do overcoming such a a huge hurdle I guess bump in the road on your on your 20s but but I guess as a result it bringing you back to your true purpose which you seem to have found and that's a really special thing so thank you so much for coming on and sharing everything that you have done we will put a link to Planet Patrol in the show notes so that if anyone's interested in getting one of those testing kits they can do that there um, and also a link to Lizzie's book which I know was a bestseller as well and I would highly recommend having a read of that as well so Lizzie thank you so much thank you for having me it's been great so thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I'll be back on Friday for my Ask Alice. Again, if you have any questions for that, send us an email to the email that's in the show notes. If you are enjoying the podcast and you'd like to hear a little more from me, I am so excited to announce that I have just written my latest book, Give Me Strength, How I Turned My Back on Restriction, Nurtured the Body I Love and How You Can Too. It comes out in July and is available for pre-order now. And it's the book I wish I had read when I was really struggling with body image and exercise addiction and so if this sounds like something that might help you you can find the link to get your copy in the show notes now i'll be back next wednesday for my next episode and i look forward to speaking to you then give me strength is an insanity studios production the podcast producer is saffron merza and podcast production assistant is abby sandler